This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Thursday night, March 11th, the year of our Lord, 2021. Jam-packed as always. we got a big week here. Actually, it's ongoing. Some of it's already happened. Some of it's in the process of happening. Some you can see, some you can't see. All of it I'll tell you about, though, before we go off the air tonight. We're talking about, to be honest with you, something I never thought I'd talk about at the inception of the college football playoff, and that is which era has been was and then will be healthier for college football. The old BCS, you know, the much maligned BCS, or what a lot of people are pitching as the future of college football, an 18 playoff, an expanded playoff. Again, stuff that maybe I thought I'd never hear myself say, I'll probably say on the show tonight, but I'm going to give you my reasons. Some of you are going to agree, disagree. I'll give you my reasons. The Sunshine State Scorecard came out this week. Now, that's a special that Bud Elliott does for several states a few times a year. But I look at it, especially the Florida and California versions and double especially the Florida version as the real key to unlocking parity in college football. Don't have a lot of it right now. I think there are tangible ways that don't involve expanding a playoff that we could go about getting it. That's one of them. We'll talk about that tonight. Also, it is the continuation of the series that we're doing where we're asking these questions for different conferences out there. We're going to hit the ACC from... Several different, like half a dozen angles tonight. All that plus the Notre Dame mood tracker. And before we start, a great big thank you to everyone who participated in our first, but certainly not last, Late Kick Show Owners Association meeting. It was great. I sat right over there and uh, we just, we got about, what, somewhere between 20 and 25 of you in a room on Zoom and we just talked for like an hour and a half, somewhere between an hour and a half and two hours. Here's the important part. It's not the last time we're going to do it. Next, when, I think when we get over 14,000 on Twitter, at Late Kick Josh, that'll be the next one. We learned a lot though. The process taught us a lot about how we should structure it and format it next time. So we're happy. We got a nice B, B-plus product that we are rapidly going to turn into an A-plus product the next time around. So we're really happy with that. And um, thank you so much because it was really, really fun. Also, one of, one of those other irons in the fire that you guys always ask me about is merchandising and whatnot. And I'm certainly not an expert on that by any means, but some people are. Just stay tuned. Not too much longer. Stay tuned on that. We got a lot to talk about. Let's dive in. The BCS and the college football playoff, two distinct eras. When we were in one, most of us claimed that we wanted the other. And now the more and more we've gotten into the other, I'll be darned if a couple of us, maybe even three, maybe five, maybe even, I don't know, 30% are looking back saying, you know, things weren't so bad during the BCS. Now, there are certainly, there's certainly merit to the college football playoff. So let's dive into this because I think in a lot of ways, we're at an inflection point in college football. Now, there are a lot of different conversations going on simultaneous. So we don't even have time just on this show or a collection of these shows to address every single one of them. But I think a lot of us can agree on a few things, even if we disagree on the answers. The inflection point that is here, and I think it's been here for a little while now in college football, is this confluence of a whole bunch of things that we don't like. I don't think any of us look at the deterioration of bowl season 
and it mattering less and less and say, oh, that's a good thing. We're happy about that. I don't think any of us, as, as pure college football fans, are looking at a bunch of guys opting out of bowl games and saying, oh, man, I love that. I don't think any of us are looking at the increasing regionality of college football and saying, oh, I love that. Man, I love when 70% of the country doesn't matter. No one likes that. Where we differ is what we think the solution or the solutions should be. So I want to talk about the problems a little bit tonight and maybe the genesis of some of those problems being from a different kind of well than maybe a lot of people think it's from. Lately, I've been asking myself a question I thought I'd never ask myself. And I remember vividly, before I give you the question, when there were rumors about the college football playoff, it, ha- it was for a, a long time. I mean, people were talking about a playoff for a long time, but when it finally started to sound like it was really possible was like 2011, 12. I mean, that's when it came around eventually. And I was so excited. A lot of other people were excited because I was just envisioning the stretch run of college football. The regular season was still going to matter a whole lot, but the stretch run that that November when you have those consequential bowl games, not only are you going to have Ohio State-Michigan or the Iron Bowl or Florida and Florida State, but those games are then going to have an added layer of consequence when it comes to the playoff. And it was going to be great, and, and, and that selection Sunday was going to be like nothing that college football had seen before. And that was to some degree true. But now we're several years into the college football playoff, and it started in 2014, and now we're, in, we're entering 2021. And I think I put out something the other day on Twitter that I think is a minority opinion, but I said I think it'll be a majority opinion in 2030. And this is should be caveated if we expand the playoff. I'm against it. You know that. My opinion has been well chronicled. But if we end up expanding this playoff, I believe that there's going to be a time down the road where more people are looking back and saying, you know, in retrospect, that BCS era – that era I had so many problems with when we were in it. As it turns out, it was healthier for college football than this expanded playoff. Now, a lot of you would never envision yourself saying that right now, just like I never envisioned myself in 2007 or 8 or 9 saying, if we ever have a playoff, I'll probably end up liking it less than the BCS. I never thought I'd say that. I didn't have, I didn't have the intuition. I didn't have the vision. I couldn't see around college football's corner. But yet I'm close to it right now for different reasons. Now, it's not all the playoffs fault. So we're going to dive into this. We're going to go 50,000 feet here for just a second, because what I care about, as it turns out, was taken care of in the BCS era. It certainly wasn't perfect. By no means was the BCS era perfect. You could nitpick as to whether the AP had too much power or computers had too much power, uh, whether two teams was enough. We can nitpick all that. We could talk about that. We always did back then. But I want you to think about If you agree with me, now if you don't agree with me, it's a different discussion, but if you agree that these things matter, these things were being served well, like um, rivalry games being paramount. That was still being served. They still mattered. They had a history and a life of their own back then, I think much more so, and crystallized back then much more so than they are right now in this current era. The regular season was absolutely paramount back then. There was no safety net under anyone. It It was do or die virtually every week urgency every week, unique unto any other sport in the American landscape. Bowl season was awesome because we had the BCS, but yet teams that weren't making the national championship game were still jacked to go play in one of the BCS games or the Capital One Bowl or the Gator Bowl or the Meineke Car Care Bowl. It just, it all mattered. Well, what in the world happened? So we fast forward now, like how, how could it be that just adding a playoff? So we added what, two more teams? 
The grand total went from two to four. How could it be that the playoff eroded away at a lot of this? Well, I don't think it was just the playoff. I've spoken about this before, but I want to dive into it a little bit more tonight. Because, see, the title game still matters, so we didn't lose any value on the title game. Everyone watched the BCS title game, but yet all that other stuff mattered, too. So if we were to expand this thing to eight versus that, that's kind of the question I'm asking. Which environment would be healthier for college football? It's my opinion that this sport saw the slow erosion begin to its overall product when the value of the nucleus and the definition of the nucleus of the sport started shifting from regular season to postseason. Now, in, again, retrospect, it wasn't quite evident at the time, when you had the hub of college football, which is ESPN, when you had the hub of college football able to purchase that college football playoff contract, it's a no-brainer. They did what you and I would do if we ran the marketing department at ESPN. I mean, we'd put all of our dollars and cents behind marketing that product. We just spent untold billions of dollars on. That was a no-brainer. Problem is it came at the expense of something. You can't just put that machine behind one thing and not have it come at the expense of another thing. Slowly but surely, as we shifted the nucleus of college football from regular season to postseason, a funny thing happened. People started to pay attention. Not just you and I. Players started to pay attention. And so games that used to matter didn't quite matter as much anymore. More emphasis on one thing removes emphasis from another thing. And uh, it took a while for people to realize that this was happening, but yet it was happening. And so I'm listening to some folks talk, and I've heard it at the sort of ground level a lot, but I have not really heard many national voices speak this way. I got to credit Kirk Herbstreet. I was listening to Kirk Herbstreet the other day talk about this, and it's probably the biggest voice to date that I have heard really be willing to look in the mirror and call himself out a little bit, uh, maybe call his employer out a little bit, but just also call into account the entire tier one college football media ecosystem, which bears a lot of responsibility, whether you like it or not, whether they admit it or not, to shaping uh, that nasty word that we don't like to use, narrative, to shaping that narrative of college football. Ultimately, what the big boys and big girls talk about, what the big networks talk about, what they show you, what they put in front of you, that sets the tone, that sets the conversation piece, and that defines what the focus is going to be on this sport. And I'm listening to Kirk Herbstreit the other day, I believe on the Letterman Rose podcast, and he said, listen, somewhere along the way, we allowed the definition of what college football is to shift from regular season to postseason. We got to put the brakes on that and we got to throw it in reverse and we got to get back to the fact that, hey, Iowa versus Iowa State, that stuff matters. Independent of whether both teams are going to go on to finish no better than eight and four, that rivalry game matters. Like the, the Gator Bowl, it matters. It's a big deal to make that bowl game. It used to be that way it is rapidly deteriorating into something that you don't really recognize as the college football that you grew up on, that I, even I grew up on. And so what's the answer here? It's not too late. By no means is it too late to do anything about this. I wouldn't be talking about it if it was too late. I'm going to tell you what I don't think the answer is. I don't think the answer is more playoff. Now, some people do. Some people would tell you, if you want to make the regular season matter more, then expand to eight teams. And, and here's the caveat that a lot of you add in that I just fundamentally disagree with, you've got to give an auto bid to every conference champion. Why? Because that means every conference championship race matters, every conference title game matters, and to a certain degree, you're right. Okay, you're kind of kind of penny-wise, pound-foolish, in my opinion, in your thinking there, but you are technically right. Every conference championship game would matter, but what is it coming at the expense of? Because what I'm valuing, what I care about the most in this sport is the regular season. 
I think it's the most precious commodity that this sport has. And I'm telling you unequivocally, you cannot expand this playoff. You cannot give more seats at the table and still maintain the urgency and the value and the no safety net aspect under the regular season. You can't do that. That's impossible. You can have one or you can have the other. You can't have both. What I'm asking you to do for just a second is to remove every preconceived notion you have and just sit back for a second in a dark room at night, just stare at your ceiling and just ask yourself, should the postseason and getting it right in the postseason, should that really be how we define whether we've got a healthy sport or not? Because it wasn't too long ago, the postseason, like in the national championship, it mattered. But man, like the regionality, who was going to win the Pac-12, who played in the Rose Bowl, who's going to win the SEC championship game, all that stuff mattered. Like it was treated every bit as big as, all right, we're, th- we're going to have a national championship too, and, and that's going to be that's going to be nice. Someone's going to get crowned national championship. But it wasn't like, all right, well, Louisville, they've already lost two games early in the season. They're out of it. Screw Louisville. Like, we're not going to talk about them the rest of the year. How in the world is that healthy? So my answer is not, well, just tell Louisville to win the conference championship. That means technically they're still alive. No, it doesn't. You know that as well as I do. I'm just envisioning a product that morphs into something so razor focused on the last lap that it ignores the first seven laps when the first seven laps, the regular season is its core product and it loses itself. I have spoken at great length about how, like I used to, I used to love watching NASCAR when I grew up and I used to love watching those races at places like Darlington, for example. And then all of a sudden the Darlington race was gone. And they're racing in Kansas and Chicago. And that's great. That's wonderful. Try and expand the sport. It's kind of like watching the NHL come into Atlanta and come into these southern markets. And it's like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to shoehorn your way into? Understand where your core is. Understand your identity. Just because a consultant walked in a room one day and said, this is the way it's got to be. No, it's not the way it's got to be. You know who you are. Look in the mirror. College football. We used to know what college football was. Now, I'm not sure. You get 10 different answers from 10 different people. College football is at its best when the regular season is the nucleus of the sport. I'm not so sure. In fact, I'm sure the other way, expanding, is not the way to go to achieve that. Unfortunately, we'll probably have to learn it the hard way, though. In the meantime, how in the world do we get parity back in college football? Because parity is paramount. But Elliot who works for us here at 24-7 Sports, he does a feature called the Sunshine State Scorecard. And the concept of this is very basic. It's just how much blue chip talent that comes out of the state of Florida from the high school level is staying in Florida. Now, for the purposes of this exercise, we're going to exclude IMG Academy in Bradenton because that's where a lot of kids from all over the country come to finish up their high school career. And it's, it's kind of like a, preparatory, a football prep academy. And so we exclude IMG But the kids from Tallahassee and the kids from Miami and the kids from Tampa, Orlando, how many of those kids are staying in state? The ones who are rated four and five stars, so the true blue chip kids, how many of them are staying in state? And I firmly believe that not only is this exercise fascinating, but it extends well beyond just being a nice little checkup of how good Florida and Miami and Florida State are doing. I believe this is the key to really unlocking that that elusive parity that a lot of us are looking for in college football, this is the key to it. First things first here. So the trends aren't good. They're not good for Florida or Florida State or Miami. I don't think this is a surprise, even if you're just a casual follower of recruiting. So Jesse's got a couple of graphics here. The first one we're going to throw up is just kind of showing you a four-year trend of what's been happening with the four- and five-star talent. 
in the state of Florida. So this last recruiting cycle, the 2021 recruiting cycle, only 37% of the four and five star rated players in Florida stayed in state. That's the second lowest mark ever. I think 2005 was the only year since we've been keeping up with this stuff that it was lower. But you can also see, like if you're listening to the podcast, we're looking at a graphic right now and it's several year over year. It's it's a long time. It's not just kind of conveniently cherry picking for the sake of cherry picking. We're going back quite a ways here. And you can see the precipitous decline. Over the last four cycles, 42% of the four and five star talent has stayed in state. And based on any one rolling four-year average, that's the lowest average that we've ever had of any four-year average. So a lot of kids are leaving the state. A lot of really highly ranked kids are leaving the state more than are staying home. Now, there are a lot of anecdotal reasons that this could be. A lot of elite kids are leaving the state of Florida. There are many anecdotal reasons you could give me. You could say, for example, and you'd be right, well, on average, more kids leave any state than they ever have before. State boundaries just seem to matter less and less. It's what the proliferation of technology has done to younger generations. Yeah, that's all, that's all true. But that is anecdotal and it's excuse making because you and I both know pretty much the same thing. No one is growing up in Plant City, Florida with the natural inclination in their mind that, you know what, I need to get to Clemson, South Carolina. You know what, in order, in order for me to fulfill my destiny, I'm an eight-year-old kid living in Sarasota. I really probably belong in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. No one comes from Fort Lauderdale and says, what is that? I just feel Columbus, Ohio calling my name. They're going there because that's where they think they have to go in order to be developed at the highest level possible and in order to compete for national championships and maximize their value for this level and the next level beyond. And that's a reality because the part B of this is the state of Florida hadn't been getting the job done. And to put a finer point on it, the coaching staffs in the state of Florida at the big three, FSU, Miami, and Florida, they haven't gotten the job done. And it's not been a one or two year thing. It's been an extended period of time thing now. Florida's got to get their state in order because I'm going to tell you what that would do. Yeah, it'd be great for the Gators. It'd be great for the Canes. It'd be great for the Knowles. It'd be great for you all who want parity so badly in college football. Ask yourself, if Florida and Miami and Florida State were keeping instead of 37 to 38%, what if they were keeping 60, 65% of that talent home? Number one, their rosters would be much improved. But number two, when you watch Alabama play, you watch Clemson, you watch Ohio State play, and they have these game breakers. Like it's not collective units, it's superstar players that can take over games. If you take one or two of those off each roster and you drop them in the state of Florida, not only do you maybe change the outcomes of games, not only do you maybe add a win or two onto the, the win-loss columns of the respective teams in Florida, maybe you change the national landscape while you're at it. Like maybe all of a sudden, if North Carolina's playing Clemson one random Saturday and they're down inside the 10-yard line and it's first and goal and they're going for the win and one less elite edge rusher exists for Clemson, maybe that's the difference in a win or loss. There was no Florida team even playing in that game. But yet Miami or Florida or Florida State may have impacted the outcome of that game. Ditto for Alabama. Ditto for Ohio State. There's no reason for this. I want to actually, Jesse, you got another graphic, don't you? So it gets even more pronounced the, the finer the microscope you put on it. When you're talking about top 100 kids, not just four and five star, but elite four and then five star kids out of the state of Florida, what's the number? The numbers, they had like four of 13 stay in the state this past year. So the state of Florida had 13 kids ranked inside the top 100 of the 24-7 sports player rankings. Only four of those 13 stayed in state. Over the past four years, the top 100 players from Florida, 
50% or more have left the state every single one of those last four years. That's not good. It's also borderline unprecedented or outright unprecedented. It hasn't happened. And so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking about all the formulas that people lay out there for how we get college football parity and do we need to expand the playoff and do we need to change this and change that? Do scheduling dynamics need to change? How about just having Florida get their house in order? And by Florida, I mean everybody down there. If Gus Malzahn wants to come in and be a factor here, then have Central Florida be a factor here. I don't care who gets it done. I'm just saying this would send such a bigger ripple effect through the sport of college football. And think about this. So we're not really talking about the Golden State scorecard in this particular show, but we do that as well. When the Golden State scorecard comes out and you look at the mass talent exodus that's been leaving the state of California, what if, what if both of those things happen? Like what if USC and Cal or just, just the West Coast, what if the West Coast kept a majority of the California talent at home and the state of Florida kept its Florida talent at home? How different would the sport be? I didn't change anything about the postseason. I didn't change anything about scheduling. All I did was I upped the recruiting efforts, hypothetically, of course, from the programs that are in the backyards of the hottest geographic recruiting bases in America. That is what has allowed Alabama, one of the things that has allowed Alabama to soar. They go into Florida and Texas and California, for that matter, and they routinely just pluck whoever they want to, seemingly. Uh, Ohio State's done the same thing. Clemson, especially in Florida, has tended to do the same thing. And it's another example. I go back to this analogy constantly. It's another example of people thinking the problem is in the window. So it's out there. It's, it's something about the sport. In reality, it's in the mirror. Dan Mullen and his staff, they got to do better. That starts in the mirror. Like Mike Norvell's brand new on the scene. Manny Diaz still kind of new on the scene. And, and the recruiting efforts have gotten better at Miami. There is not a top 10 ranked team in the state of Florida this recruiting cycle. For this past recruiting cycle, the 2021 cycle, none of those teams finished in the top 10. Do you know how insane that is? You've got to be giving kids reasons to leave the state. Their default setting is they want to stay home. Like Florida kids aren't dying to go play in Ohio. They're not dying to go play in South Carolina. They're going there because you're not giving them a better option. You give them a better option, they stay home. They stay home, you win more. You win more possibly at the expense of Bama, Clemson, and Ohio State winning more. And then all of a sudden you got your parity in college football or at least a little bit more and you have a few more seats at that tier two table and those programs may be knocking on the door of tier one status. That's how you start to fix your parity problem. Every time someone's screwing up things in their own backyard, the answer is not, let's just overhaul the sport. Overhaul your process. Fix your own self before you start looking out the window and saying, college football holding us back. Like imagine, I'm not saying I'm hearing this excuse, but, but the again, the 50K foot excuse for the lack of parity is just thought to be the playoff, is just allowing the few to thrive, the expense of the many. No, it's not. No, the, the, the ineptitude in the recruiting departments for a long time now in places like Tallahassee and Gainesville and Miami, that has allowed Alabama and Ohio State and Clemson to flourish. It has nothing to do with how many teams you got in the playoff. Moving on. I, I, did, I didn't grow up in Florida. It just sounds like I did. Let's talk about uh, some big questions, though, throughout the spring. Uh, what am I scratching myself for? Well, I, if you're listening to the podcast, ignore this. But Director Colin and I have developed sort of a routine, a new habit, if you will, in the kitchen right before I come into the studio to do the show. So I chug a, what is, it's just, it's just gasoline, essentially. What it is, is it's 180 milligrams of caffeine in a can. And I just turn it up moments before I come in here. So about now, we're 20 minutes into the show. Now's when it really starts to hit. 
and your teeth chatter and your neck itches. And really, if I were to fully react like I feel like physically reacting, you'd probably schedule an intervention for me sometime later this weekend. So ignore the scratching of the arm. It's just jitters. That's all that is. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. It's the NFL offseason, but on Pick 6, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Deucible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, Pick 6 has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must Listen, download, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found. How about the ACC? Biggest questions for the spring for several of these programs. Hey, I got one. I got to go right back to Tallahassee, Florida. We got to start with Florida State. I banged on them for like five minutes. Now let's talk about the potential upsides. Mackenzie Milton. My biggest question probably for the entire ACC, to be honest with you, is what's Mackenzie Milton going to look like? This is a guy in 2018, if you just kind of remember vaguely, had a leg injury. It wasn't a leg injury. There were there were serious rumors that he was going to have to have his leg amputated. Like it was a very very serious catastrophic type injury. And he transfers and he's at Florida State now. And here's what has just fascinated me. It caught my attention a lot. Not only have the beat writers around Florida State said he's going to be good to go. Not only has Mike Norvell, the head coach there, and Kenny Dillingham and like the staff there. Not only have they said he's going to be good to go, but like it's. It's now spring practice time, and I think they're two days into their spring practice now, and so you're starting to try and get a real sense of how's he moving around? Like, do we get to see any footage of him? How does he look? And mobility is one of the main facets of his game. Without it, you're not getting really uh, the McKenzie Milton that you remember. But I've heard a lot of people down there say he's going to be full speed. He's going to be good to go. He's cleared. And like you and I have watched this sport long enough to know there's a big difference, especially with lower extremity injuries between being cleared and being back. If McKenzie Milton's back, number one, the quarterback battle at Florida State may be decided, uh, not without competition, but I'm saying if you could see the last chapter of the quarterback battle, it could be decided if he is truly 100%. I'd have to see it to believe it, but I sure do hope that's the case because that could change a whole lot. The second thing I'm looking at is I'm looking at Clemson, and the talk all of last year was Clemson is the best team in the ACC. They're going to go to the ACC title game. They're going to get a rematch against Notre Dame. They're going to win that game. And then here's the part that a lot of people got wrong. Then they're going to go and they're going to beat Ohio State as a touchdown favorite in the semifinal, and it's going to be Bama-Clemson part 47. Well, that wasn't the case. Uh, they got skull drug by Ohio State, and it turned out the perception did not match reality with Clemson. And there were these whispers. We talked about it a few times on this show. Uh, some other people in the more data and analytics-based communities, they whispered. They didn't want to scream it, but they whispered throughout the year, uh, Clemson is not really who you remember them being out wide. They're not going to be exposed in the regular season in all likelihood, but they will be exposed when they face an elite pass rush and or elite defensive back play come postseason time. 
Well, I, listen, though, I wouldn't even say Ohio State threw elite defensive back play at him, but they did not have the wide receivers to take over games, which begs the following question now that we are in the spring, do they have that this year? You know, Justin Ross, for example, uh, formerly of Phoenix City, Alabama, Central High School fame, is he returning to form? Uh, is DJ Uyangalale going to pan out to be everything that you hope he is? I have very little doubt about him. I certainly have very little doubt about Justin Ross. But, you know, oh, offensive line, mainly from a run-blocking perspective, really underachieved last year for them. But therein lies one of the problems. Like, if if I know you can't really establish that against me, I'm not scared of it. And if I'm not scared of it, I can devote a lot more time to shutting down that passing game of yours. And that happened. At big moments last year, that happened. Can't happen this year. And so I'm looking at that with a razor-sharp focus with Clemson. Which other names? I know Justin Ross. Like, which other names can I get to emerge? And I'm not talking about names that I know from the recruiting trail. I'm talking about names that I know because they now have proven production at Clemson. You know, or if they're new and they're young and they can't have proven production. What people around Clemson keep telling me about them, people I can trust, you know, you start to hear some whispers and rumors. It didn't take... A.J. Green and Julio Jones playing deep into their freshman year before you knew they were the real deal. Got to get some more of those at Clemson. Got to restock the cupboard. How about Georgia Tech? I need to get a year two bump for Jeff Sims and really this entire offense at Georgia Tech. Did the mood tracker for Georgia Tech a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about how even though they've only won three games each of the first two years of Jeff Collins being there, there's still a lot of excitement. And it's because there's a realistic nature about the way that the fan base has looked at the program, and they understood Ground up rebuild. We got to overturn a lot. We're not running the triple option anymore. It's going to take some time. We got to redefine who we are. Well, at the beginning of year two last year, you kind of saw a mirage, still wandering through the desert, but there was that mirage. And the mirage was the B roll that uh, we're looking at right now, to be honest with you. Jesse was just showing you that Florida State game. Jeff Sims and Georgia Tech, they went into Tallahassee and won in week one. And he looked good. Like he he was in control at times. He, he made some some errant throws, but he was also controlling the game, extending plays with his legs. He made some really good throws, showed a lot of arm talent. And you said, I do, I wasn't even talking about Jeff Sims at all this week. For that matter, I wasn't talking about Georgia Tech this week. Maybe they're for real. Well, they weren't for real yet. It was by far a year ahead of schedule. Probably if you had an ideal roster situation, Jeff Sims wouldn't have been starting for you last year. Things are far from ideal, or at least were last year, at Georgia Tech. So he was starting. Well, hopefully, a lot of the growing pains you saw last year leads to tangible growth that you see on the field this year. They were very inconsistent last year. You're just looking for how many elements, how many layers of the Georgia Tech offense do you feel confident that you can go to war with? Because, see, a lot of focus is on defense with them. Like, defensively, they underachieved last year. I just don't like I don't worry all that much about Jeff Collins and defense. I, I don't maybe I end up being wrong about that. I don't worry about it. If they get things figured out offensively, like I keep waiting for there to be a real big spike in production from Georgia Tech. Third year, I think, is a reasonable time to expect that. How about North Carolina? North Carolina coming into last year, they knew they had, well, they thought they had really good elements at quarterback and wide receiver. They got good talent at running back. Defensively, they don't have the horses up front. And they knew that last year. This was not a mystery if you listen to that coaching staff or you talk to people close to the program. And so you hope to see a glaring difference this year. Sam Howell's a proven commodity. The offense in general, there's very little doubt they're going to have really good production there. Can they stop people? Can they force turnovers? Can they disrupt? Do they have enough quality depth to compete in fourth quarters? Because there were a couple of times against better teams last year, defensively, they couldn't give themselves a chance to win in the fourth quarter. So 
you got to build that. And obviously they think they're closer now than they were a year ago. I think spring will go a long way in determining, you know, how right they are about that. You got some new bodies there, but they got a lot of returning pieces too. You know, it's not so much about who's new here. It's we got a lot of pieces back. Is that a good thing? Is it going to matter as much as a preview magazine would lead you to believe? That's that's the number one focus for me with Georgia Tech or with North Carolina. And it can be when you got quarterback figured out. Lastly, how about Miami's wide receiver depth? Derek King is where the focus is going to be here, but he's out for spring. We think he'll be back in time to at least compete for, if not reclaim, his starting quarterback position in the fall. And that leads to its own set of issues because you got some new you got some new faces in that quarterback room too that aren't going to exactly be happy just being a placeholder for Derek King. But we'll talk about that in the fall. This is about spring questions. Either quarterback is going to need wide receivers to emerge. And I know like you got you got one guy in like Harley you like he he had a good second half of the season last year. Okay, I can depend on him. What do you got for me next? Charleston Rambo transfers in from Oklahoma. Okay, I think I can depend on him. But after that, it's just names. Mark Pope, D. Wiggins, like those are names. And they're guys that you're going to pencil into the starting rotation or they're going to be contributors, but they're just names. There's nothing proven. They were very inconsistent. In a lot of ways, the entire passing game um, struggled to be dependable at times last year. They got to have pieces at receiver step up. I don't care who starts a quarterback for them. Miami's going to have to have more pieces at receiver step up. And they're going to have games where they got to know that they can get 35 if they need it to win. And I'd be kind of uncomfortable assuming that right this moment in time, that's what God created spring practice for. So those are the biggest questions we have for the ACC for the 2021 college football season. All right, let's wrap it up with a mood tracker. There is no program that collectively has come after me with as much fervor as Notre Dame fans have. Now, they've been a lot smaller. It's not been an army. It's been like a kind of a mafia. But man, they've been so adamant in the DMs and the emails about, we need to get the Notre Dame mood tracker. So it's Notre Dame mood tracker time tonight. Premier purgatory is the mood around South Bend. This is very counterintuitive. Premier and purgatory. Those are not, it's alliteration. I'll grant you that, but it's not a couple of words that you ever hear joined together. It's a rare recipe. I'll grant you that because you need two things. Number one, to be premier, I mean, obviously you got to be operating at a level that leads you to be the envy of 95% of college football, but yet you've also got to be stuck somewhere where you're still solidly looking up at the other 5% and there's some distance between you and the 5%. This was one of the easiest moods to track. Premier purgatory. I was over on irishillustrated.com today, over on the board there, and I was asking what is your mood? Give me one word, one phrase. What's the mood here? And someone said purgatory. And they said, uh, it's a nice theme, falls in line with Catholicism. You want to go that route, go that route. I just slapped premier on the front of it because there, there is rightfully so a lot of pride and excitement about Notre Dame football. This program over a rolling stretch, you could argue is operating at the highest level it has in several generations. You don't have to win playoff games and national championships to be a really good program. But Having said that, they didn't get here yesterday. Like, I think it's four out of the last five or five out of the last six years, they've won double digit games. Well, once you get there and then you're still there and then you're there again, they had like a four and eight season in there somewhere. But, you know, if you if you subtract the best and worst out of this stretch, they're a double digit win caliber program. But then that's it. Okay, so that's premier. But yet you're still kind of stuck purgatorily if it didn't exist before it does now below the big boys. You're tier one or you're tier two. You're solidly tier two. The goal is to be tier one and they know it. 
That's the thing about Notre Dame fans. They know it. There, there's no irrationality. I have not had a single person come to me and say, fire Brian Kelly. I have not had a single person come to me and say, I'm out. You know, we, can't, we can't beat Alabama, so I'm done with Notre Dame football. There's none of that. But there's also a lot of, man, I wish we could just get quarterback figured out. or I wish we could add some talent at wide receiver, the likes of which the other big boys have. Because Notre Dame fans, they watch Tua Tonga-Vailoa and Trevor Lawrence or Baker Mayfield, Justin Fields, they see all that and they look at their TV screen or they look at the field in person and they say, two things that we realize. Firstly, you got to have one of those if you're going to win a championship. And secondly, we don't have one and we haven't had one in quite a while. And then they look at guys like uh, Devontae Smith or someone like that and they say, you got to have some of those guys too. And we don't have those. And quite simply, that is what has separated Notre Dame from being a true championship contender. There's a wide gap in the sport between being a playoff contender and a championship contender. It seems like, well, how, how is that? It's only one more game. It's a Grand Canyon to cross, believe me, if you don't have the right quarterbacks and wide receivers guiding you. So I asked someone today who I trust implicitly about Notre Dame football, just out of curiosity. I'm doing the mood tracker tonight. What is your mood, one word or phrase? And they said two years away from truly being a title contender, two years away. This year's team will be another solid team. You don't look, Jack Cohn comes in on the transfer market, like you don't look at quarterback right now and figure, yeah, Notre Dame, will, they'll finally have it at quarterback this year. They'll finally have it at receiver this year. Crazier things have happened, but a lot of the hope is not being placed uh, on the shoulders of Jack Cohn. It's being placed on the shoulders of Tyler Buckner. Tyler Buckner is a true freshman. This year, the hope, from this person at least, was that one year later, we will have found out, for better or for worse, what we really have there, and then we'll be able to go to work, and you know, it's another recruiting class under your belt. Uh, But I do want to address, before we move on and close it here, the Notre Dame is overrated crowd. It's never, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know where it comes from. I hear it a lot. Like, Notre Dame's made the playoffs a couple of times the last few years, and I get told Notre Dame's overrated. According to what? According to what's, what scale out there is Notre Dame overrated on? I have not seen anyone worth their salt, anyone of any credibility, point to this program and say they're right there with Alabama. They're right there with Clemson. They're superior to or equal to Ohio State, Bama, Clemson. No one says that with any credibility. If they said it, that would be someone overrating Notre Dame. No one says that. What they do say is once you get past those programs, your Georgias of the world, you know, your Oregons, like we are right there in line with what any of these other folks out here are doing. So yeah, there may be two or three of them that we can't compare to, but we'll compare our product favorably with anyone else you want to trot out there in America. That's not overrating Notre Dame. That's what, that's an accurate picture of what Notre Dame football has been. Like they have been a Northern version of what Georgia has been. They, uh, Oklahoma's won a few more games, but they've kind of been what Oklahoma has been a really, really good program, better than 90 plus percent of the sport. They haven't gotten over the playoff hump. They haven't won a championship, but yet they're whatever the next tier is. They're right there. Notre Dame's not overrated. If I say that about Notre Dame, I'm just giving you an accurate portrayal of Notre Dame. Just cause you keep running into Alabama and Clemson and losing. And those are the only teams knocking you off. That doesn't mean you're overrated. Theoretically, the number four team in the country would have that problem. You keep running into the number one and number two teams in America, and those are the ones beating you. Well, that doesn't mean you're not top five. It just means you're not top two. So Notre Dame's right there. Quarterback, wide receiver. Get those positions figured out, and you get that championship drought figured out. 
Good show tonight. Remember, uh, we are looking to accumulate a few things around here, and none of them involve money. We love it when you follow us on Twitter, at LateKickJosh. We love it when you like the video and subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. And we love those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, over on Spotify. We, we love the traction. Again, we're not charging you for any of that. And so, um, humbly, that's all we ask in return. Thank you so much to you for making a lot of things possible that we did this week. Again, we're looking to add more and more of that to the plate as long as you want to make that possible. So, our balls are in your court, as we like to say t-shirt idea, Colin. All right, for Director Colin Emeritus, for Jesse and the entire crew in Connecticut, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for watching. Have a great early start to your weekend. You know what? Why not? Go watch some basketball. Have a great weekend. God bless. shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.